Hello, welcome to the Beef Cattle Health and Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. John Campbell. Before we start today's podcast, I just have some quick advertisements for some very important opportunities for Canadian cow-calf producers to participate in some ongoing projects that are both sponsored by the Beef Cattle Research Council. The 2023 Canadian Cow-Calf Survey is an online questionnaire that's set up to collect data to help understand some of the longer-term trends in production methods and efficiencies. It only takes about 30 to 60 minutes of your time and it's going to hope to collect credible information directly from cow-calf producers to help the BCRC identify research priorities and information gaps, to also develop provincial benchmarks and examine changes over time that impact farms and ranches. The results of this project are going to help inform research and extension strategies that have the greatest potential to benefit Canadian cattle producers. And the more responses that they get, the better decisions they can make. You can find the link on the show notes at our podcast website, bchn.transistor.fm. You can also go to the Beef Cattle Research Council website. That's www.beefresearch.ca and find the links there. The second research opportunity is a bit of a longer-term project. The Canadian Cow-Calf Health and Productivity Enhancement Network is looking for cow-calf herds to participate in their project across Canada. This project is somewhat related to our old cow-calf surveillance network project that we've talked about previously on the podcast, and this new project is coordinated by my colleague Dr. Cheryl Waldner. They're hoping to develop performance benchmarks and best management practices to meet the specific needs of different types of cow-calf operations in Canada. They're looking for commercial and seed stock cow-calf herds that have at least 30 calving cows. You have to keep basic production records, have access to email, and a relationship with your local veterinarian. This project will be hoping to collect production records and have the participating producers answer a survey or two every year on different management practices. You can contact Jace Fossen, who is the project coordinator. His email is c3h.pen at usask.ca or you can phone him at 306-966-7870 if you're interested in participating and he can give you more details. I'll have his email address and his phone number and all the other contact details in the show notes as well at bchn.transistor.fm. Let's get to today's guest. This week, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Vanessa Cowan to the podcast. Dr. Cowan is a specialist in veterinary toxicology, and she's recently become a faculty member here at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Cowan worked extensively with beef cattle during her PhD training, and today she joins me to discuss one of the most common clinical toxicities that we see in beef cattle, lead poisoning. Let's get started. Hi, Vanessa. Thanks for being here. Welcome to the podcast. We've just got you started here as a faculty member at the Vet College in Veterinary Toxicology. And maybe before we start on our topic for today, I'll get you to tell the audience a bit about your background. For sure. Thanks for having me on the podcast today, John. I'm happy to be here. So a little bit about myself. I am a lifelong Saskatchewan resident. I was born in Regina, but grew up in Saskatoon. I've done all my post-secondary education at the University of Saskatchewan, and I first became interested in toxicology during my bachelor's degree. I found that throughout the program, I was more interested in biomedical toxicology as opposed to environmental. And eventually I met 
the veterinary toxicologist of the WCVM, Dr. Barry Blakely, and he became my mentor and has been my mentor for many years since then. So I decided that I really liked his job and I wanted to do his job one day. So eventually that led me to pursuing a PhD in toxicology in which I studied the effects of ergot alkaloid mycotoxins on different things in beef, cows and bulls. And I recently graduated from the Western College of Veterinary Medicine with my Doctor of Veterinary Medicine degree. Great. And we snatched you up because Dr. Blakely's approaching retirement. So we're glad to have you here and glad that we could get another veterinary toxicologist in our college because it's so important. So today we want to talk about one of the more common toxicities of cattle, lead toxicity. So let's start by talking about how it even occurs. What are the main sources of lead that cattle might be exposed to in the environment? Yeah, absolutely. So in Western Canada, lead poison is actually our most common toxicity that we see in cattle. So any lead that these animals encounter typically comes from a man-made or anthropogenic source. Historically, this could include things like spent crankcase oil, uh, leaded paint, so chips on old farm buildings, and leaded gasoline, as well as batteries. Today, Still, it's consumption of batteries on pasture, automotive batteries, that is the most common source. So this can be associated with old farm machinery, batteries that have been buried over time and that have been become exposed through excavation, or sometimes a battery is thrown into a feed mixer and gets chopped up and multiple cattle get exposed. So once the plastic wears away on the batteries, it reveals the lead acetate component of the batteries, which the cattle find very palatable because it's quite salty. So the cattle will lick the lead acetate on the batteries and become poisoned that way. Right. And every outbreak that I've seen of lead toxicity, it's almost always been a battery. And sometimes the producer swears there's no battery out there, but if we look hard enough, we usually find one. It's interesting, the ones where it gets chopped up in a feed mixer. I've heard stories of that as well, where somebody leaves an old battery in the front end loader and then it gets dropped in the feed truck by accident. Uh, so there's lots of ways they can get exposed to it. How much lead do they have to be exposed to? Well, not very much. So one battery, one broken battery can poison multiple cattle. If we look at the LD50 for calves or the lethal dose causing death in 50% of animals, so an oral exposure in calves is 200 to 400 milligrams of lead per kilogram body weight. So a calf, it's a 500 pound calf, for example, you only need like 50 to 100 grams to potentially have a 50, 50% chance of that animal dying. And a battery itself is about 60% lead. So there can be pounds and pounds of lead in the batteries. So when we see lead poisoning, it's typically multiple animals have licked the battery and multiple animals will be dead. And yeah, it just really doesn't take a lot, unfortunately. And how quickly does it happen? They find some lead, they're curious, they lick it, it's salty, they like it. How quickly do we start to see clinical signs? Yeah, so clinical signs occur pretty rapidly. Basically, as soon as the lead can hit their gastrointestinal tract and become absorbed, the onset can be quite rapid within an hour or so or even earlier. 
So they don't need much time. And then what do we see in terms of clinical signs when these animals start showing signs? So the clinical signs we typically see in cattle that lick lead batteries, if it's a very large amount that they ingest, they can have sudden death without any apparent clinical signs. Or you may have animals that are experiencing severe neurological disease, so seizures, recumbency paddling, and those animals will typically go on to die within the day or so. If a cow ingests a smaller amount, but still a poisonous amount, the signs can start more mild. So they could be anorexic. They may have odd behavior like head pressing. They may be off in a field by themselves away from the herd. They may have focal seizures. So like eyelids twitching or ears twitching. However, if there's lead in the reticulum and often on postmortem, you can locate lead in the reticulum that serves as a source of continuous exposure for the animal as long as lead is in there. So the symptoms will get worse. From looking at the case histories that come through PDS, the most common sign seems to be blindness in these animals. So the cattle will run into things or they'll walk into things or they'll kind of wander uh, aimlessly. So it's also a kind of a behavioral manifestation as well. Odd behavior in the cattle in addition to being blind. Sometimes you may find that the cattle are in odd locations. Like I said, they could be away from the herd, but you may also find them in a dugout or a slough, somewhere atypical for them. On physical exam, these cattle will not have a menace response because they are cortically blind. However, they're pupillary light reflexes, so looking at how the pupil responds to light being shone in the eye, that will be an intact response. However, they can be sluggish as well. These animals will also have ruminal hypomotility or even rumen stasis. And animals with neurologic signs, so whether they've been tremoring or seizuring, they often have an elevated body temperature as well. Right. So I've seen a bunch of these cases. And, and what do we do next if we see a case that we suspect might be lead toxicity? How would we confirm the diagnosis? So if you have a live animal in front of you, you want to collect heparinized blood. Serumoplasmin won't work because lead binds to red blood cells. So we need whole blood for an accurate analysis. If the animal is deceased, sending in a piece of liver or kidney will be um, appropriate for us to confirm the diagnosis. And of course, if you're doing a necropsy, do check the reticulum for pieces of metal that might support your diagnosis in the field. Okay. So when you mean heparinized blood, you're just talking about a tube that doesn't let the blood clot, correct? Correct. Okay. Can we treat it? Is there anything the veterinarian can do if we see an animal with some of these signs? Can they do anything much about that? Usually treatment is unsuccessful in the animal for multiple reasons. Um, if an animal is severely neurologically impaired, the practical and safety aspects of treating that animal are mean that you will likely not be able to poke it with something, catheterize it, and it is often going to die anyways. Those animals who have severe neurologic disease have a poor prognosis, so you can't treat those animals typically. Another thing is that you may try to treat the animal with chelating agents like calcium EDTA. However, you may have a hard time finding the calcium EDTA 
and the animal will still have lead in its tissues regardless of your treatment and may not survive in spite of your treatment. There is no true uh, effective antidote to lead poisoning in cattle. Additionally, the half-life of lead in the body is very long because lead that leaves the blood, leaves soft tissue like the liver and kidney will partition into the bone. And so the bone will serve as a depot for lead that can leach out over time as the animal clears the lead from its blood. So the half-life of lead is extremely long and therefore you may have to treat animals for a prolonged period of time and that's not practical or economical. So it's unfortunately usually euthanasia for these animals. Right. And if there's a big chunk of lead in the first stomach in the reticulum too, that will continue to release lead despite trying to treat it. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So you and Dr. Blakely did a paper a number of years ago and you've updated some of those numbers. How commonly do we see lead toxicity here in the diagnostic laboratory here in Saskatchewan? Well, it's fairly common. Uh, We get cases every month. In that study you referred that it was published in the CVJ in 2016, we documented 525 cases over that time period. I've looked at the data since then from 2014 to present, and we've documented 303 cases from 211 farms. So it is very widespread, lots and lots of farms affected, and the history, that comes along with some of these submissions usually suggests that multiple animals are affected. However, they are sending in sample from one affected animal to try and establish a diagnosis with that tissue. They may send more later. So it's quite common. Keep in mind that in an outbreak situation, uh, we will get more samples. So that will drive our numbers a bit, but this is by far the most common toxicity we see in beef cattle. Do we see cases year-round? Is there any kind of seasonal pattern to how these cases crop up? We do see cases year-round. We've had positive cases every month of the year. Generally, we receive the majority of submissions uh, in May, June, and July, especially in June. And we associate this with turnout of cattle onto pasture. And this is similar Uh, In our data from 1998 to 2013, this is similar in other parts of the world like Britain and Australia as well, which is kind of interesting. Uh, It's not uncommon in these case histories that that we receive for the clinician to indicate that the animals have recently been moved to a new pasture or been put out onto pasture. And unfortunately, if there are batteries on the pasture, uh, the cattle will typically find them at some point. We see the fewest cases in January and February, and perhaps that's not surprising, though I do find it interesting that we are diagnosing cases of lead poisoning every month of the year, including in the winter months. What about age groups? Do we see any groups of animals more likely to be impacted? Mm -hmm. So we've documented cases in cattle as young as three weeks old to up to 11 years old when we have age given in the history. So sometimes our histories don't have all the information on the animals, uh, but all ages are affected. However, the majority of cases we see seems to be the cattle around four months of age. So in the data from 2014 to present, 
the median age of cattle affected are four months old, so calves. And this is consistent with the data we had from 1998 to 2013. It seems that although all animals or all cattle are susceptible, calves are most commonly affected and are most susceptible. So why do you think that would be? Why do you think we see more calves submitted to the diagnostic lab with lead toxicity than older cattle? Mm -hmm. It comes down to kinetics. So the calves absorb more lead from their gastrointestinal tract than adult cattle do. They can absorb up to 50% of the ingested lead, where the adults absorb around 1% to 3% of the ingested lead. So they could ingest the same amount of lead, but the calves would take up more of that into their system and become poisoned. Right. And I suppose because they're smaller, the toxic dose would be lower as well. Yes. What's the public health significance of lead toxicity? Tell us about that. The public health significance of lead toxicity in cattle, um, aside from the economic loss, the loss of animals, the loss of a calf crop due to lead toxicity, is that lead passes into the milk of cattle and is also present in the muscle. So products that could potentially go into the human food chain. We're not necessarily concerned about acute neurologic disease occurring in people exposed to lead in milk or lead in muscle. However, we're more concerned with insidious cognitive deficits in children. So whether that be behavior problems, learning difficulties, stunted growth, other things. There's also a risk for pregnant women as lead does cross the placental barrier. And this is a period where for a pregnant woman, it's a high turnover of calcium because of milk production, similar to a cow. <laughs> um, so because lead is an analog for calcium and it accumulates in bone, during that time period, a lot of lead is going to be mobilized from the bone and be consumed potentially by the baby if the mother has been exposed to lead. So we want to make sure that these animals that might have been exposed to lead never make it into the food chain to protect public health. If we have some animals in our herd that have clinical signs of lead toxicity and the diagnosis is confirmed, what's the next step that a producer should probably take? So ideally, all of the animals in the herd should be investigated through blood tests. This is obviously logistically challenging, and some animals may have concentrations of lead in their blood that are elevated, and they may not have clinical signs, which can further complicate the story. Certainly, disease investigation units like yours, or like one in Calgary, would be ideal for these cases where you have uh, the expertise of someone to come in, collect all the necessary samples, and help the producer through this outbreak scenario. Unfortunately, we can't rely only on clinical signs to determine if an animal is affected or not, or if the animal has been exposed to lead. Uh, so we do have to test all animals. Yes, when we've looked, gone and done that in other herds where they've had an outbreak, we almost just about in every case find an animal that didn't show any clinical signs 
that has high lead levels and probably shouldn't enter the food chain. The other thing that is important to know, in some provinces, this is a reportable uh, issue. So in Alberta, I know that. I don't know the scenario for absolutely every province, but the chief veterinary officer's office will be involved if it's in Alberta or some of those provinces where it's provincially reportable as well. So there may be places where you can get some funding to help test those other animals, but it's pretty important to do to protect public health and to make sure that you don't have an animal show up with with lead in its tissues when it gets to the slaughter plant at some point. Let, let's say we find one of those animals that has high lead levels, but no clinical signs of toxicity. Do we know how long it'll take them to drop their blood tissue levels uh, to acceptable levels? Unfortunately, it's a long time. It could be months to years. And if that animal still has lead in its reticulum, that is another layer to this. So like I mentioned before, the lead will accumulate in the bone. And even if the animal is slowly trying to excrete the lead from the blood through the liver and kidneys, there is still going to be that source of lead in the bone that is also going to be released over time. So, and it it also depends on the animal too. I've seen numbers that range from a few hundred days to thousand days for half-life of excretion of lead in cattle. It's highly variable, uh, but the bottom line is that it's a long time. So animals, even if you do attempt to treat these animals, you're in for long, long periods of treatment, which usually are not economically or practically feasible. One of the questions I've got from time to time is, if a cow has high levels of lead, can she pass that to her calf through her milk? Some lead is excreted in the milk, yes. Now, I don't have the data to suggest that an animal can become acutely lead intoxicated from a milk exposure, but I think it would have an adverse effect on the overall health of the animal, whether that be through growth or future fertility, because lead is very embryotoxic and toxic to sperm as well. So there could be other effects in the calves if the mother has a fair amount of lead and she's passing that through the milk. So in summary, we'd probably like to prevent this because it sounds like it's major pain when it does happen. Uh, what's the best advice we can give to producers to, to make sure that they don't get their cattle exposed to lead? Yeah, so knowing what we know, that this is the most common toxicity in cattle in Western Canada, it's typically associated with batteries on pasture, and calves are the most susceptible, we need to find ways to screen our pastures for batteries. And again, I understand that that is not everyone's idea of a good time, but the cattle typically will find the batteries. So if you're able to do a pasture check and take any batteries off the pasture that you find, that would go a long way in helping prevent exposure. Of course, if batteries are covered and the cattle dig them up, that's a different story. But knowing the history of the pasture is also important. So if this is a new pasture that you're renting, potentially ask about other cases that may have occurred on the pasture or use pastures that you are familiar with and comfortable with 
and you've not had problems on in the past. Yeah, that's good advice. I think we need to make sure there's no old farm machinery or often we see issues around old uh, homestead sites or something like that where where there used to be a house, but now there's not anymore and somebody's old car got left there or whatever. So there are some ways you probably don't have to scour every inch of a pasture, but uh, there are some targeted areas we can think about when we're when we're trying to make sure that there's no possibility of lead out there. Yeah, exactly. Like a targeted area for sure. Some of the histories that I've come across is that, yeah, it's um, kind of an old uh, junk pile or there's been a burn pile and cattle are quite curious. They will investigate things that are new to them or interesting to them. So if you can't clean those areas or clear them, and at least restrict the cattle's access to that area. Great. Well, thanks, Vanessa. This has been great advice, and uh, I learned a few new things about lead toxicity as well, so appreciate your time, and I'm sure we'll have you back again sometime in the future. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you, John. It was my pleasure. That's the podcast for this week. I want to thank each of you for listening to the podcast, and thanks again to my guest, Dr. Vanessa Cowan. Thank you as well to our sponsors, the Alberta Beef Producers and the Beef Cattle Research Council. Please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have questions or comments or would like to suggest topics that you'd like to see covered in future episodes, please email me at bchnpodcast at gmail.com. Take care till next time.